If you have your Bibles, go with me to Acts. I'll tell you the chapters as soon as I get there. Acts 24. Acts chapter 24. We're actually going to be in one verse in Acts chapter 23, and then we'll be in the whole chapter of Acts 24. Let's begin. Verse 20, sorry, verse 11 of chapter 23. The following night the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Let's go to 24. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, in every way... And everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. But to, de- but to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him above everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than twelve days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that, they, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. And now after several years I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. Or tumult, or tumult. But some Jews with Asia, from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council other than this, other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, And he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. 
At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Let's, let's pray. Uh, gracious Father, I pray as we study your word this morning that you would help us to see the, the courage of the gospel so that we might be faithful in living and proclaiming the gospel. Father, we thank you for this day, and it's in your son's name. Amen. So as we approach the end of Acts here, we have begun the series speaking of courage to the end. What you have here is you have Paul coming to the end of his journeys, and things are not going to get easier, as we've seen already in chapter 24. Now Paul is in prison, and indeed it has cost him two years of imprisonment. And yet, much of Paul's greatest works and most beneficial and lasting works will take place during this time. Things such as the writing of the book Ephesians will take place during this time. Paul shows us what courage to the end looks like. For today, we ask this question. Courage to do what? Courage to do what? Courage to just be good people. Courage to just do religious things. Courage to be strong in the fight. What, what's the courage for? For today, I, I want us to think of the idea of faithful to live faith, uh, courage to live faithfully. Courage to live faithfully. Let me kind of set some parameters for our discussion this morning. Faithfully to do what? Faithfully... Like living faithfully in two things, proclaiming the gospel and living out the gospel. Proclaiming the gospel and living out the gospel. And you can argue that living out the gospel is, is in some ways a proclamation of the gospel, but there's also an, a necessary component of explicit proclamation of the gospel. We see this with Paul, that he was there to worship. He's, he's there to live out the gospel. He's not there to incite any kind of riot or... Issues with the Jews, he's there to worship. He has a life of proclaiming the gospel. But when he's captured, and now he's on trial, he also proclaims the gospel in the heat of this trial to those who are accusing him. So what's it look like for us to live faithfully in proclaiming the gospel, living out the gospel, in the face of our boss, in the face of our spouse, in the face at home, in school, in the face of our own idolatries. What does this look like? Our interest today, though, is particularly the idea of living faithfully, having the courage to live faithfully in the midst of trials and suffering. So we're going to frame this conversation. We're going to think specifically the courage to live faithfully, proclaiming the gospel, living out the gospel. That's how we're defining faithfully. And then how do we live faithfully in the midst of trials and suffering? Now, I need to frame this a little bit further as we think about trials and suffering. Because there's, there's, speaking broadly, two main categories, if you will, of, of trials and suffering. 
One is general suffering, or what I'm going to call general suffering, and that is the idea of like the brokenness of this world and the effects on us, namely suffering and trials. So let me give you some examples in this category. <clears throat> Broken relationships. Enduring sing- singleness when you would like to be married. Physical illness. <laughs> the suffering of parenting. Right? There, there's lots of these things that are not necessarily sin-related. I mean, they are in a distant way because all brokenness is a result of the fall. So in that sense, all brokenness that would cause suffering is a result of sin. But, but we're thinking about like, you didn't necessarily sin, and that's what caused that cancer, right? Um, that wasn't necessarily something you did directly, even though cancer is certainly a result of the fall. <clears throat> so think about general suffering in that sense. Like, I, I didn't necessarily do anything to cause this suffering. Now, as we work through today, there's lots of application, as we think about courage to the end, for that kind of suffering, so I don't, want to, I don't want you to completely disconnect that from today and go, okay, well, there's help for that kind of suffering, but it's a different kind of help. Today will actually be just as equally helpful for that kind of suffering, although that's not the kind of suffering that I'm particularly interested in talking about today. The kind of suffering I'm particularly interested in talking about is kind of a, a subset of, of that group of suffering, and that is suffering because of faithful living out the gospel. So in that sense, am I doing something that is bringing about suffering? Yes, but is it sin that I'm doing that's bringing about suffering? Okay, hopefully we've got that framed right. Let me give you some examples of what I mean. Or let, actually, let me give you one more caveat before we get into a couple examples. <clears throat> An observation. Many of us hardly ever suffer that kind of suffering. Many of us hardly suffer for Christ because we rarely speak of Christ. Whether that's at home, it's in our parenting, with our boss, at school, our workplace. This kind of suffering, I want you to ask the question, honestly, how much do I suffer for living faithfully the gospel of Jesus Christ. Speaking faithfully the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're too often ambassadors of our own kingdoms and suffer the and, and, and experience the suffering by that, which would be sin, right? Now we're experiencing suffering at the, as the result of sin, particularly our own sin, when we are ambassadors of our own kingdom rather than the king of creation, right? Rather than ambassadors of Christ. But how often do we actually suffer for Christ because we speak of Christ, because we live in a way that represents Christ? So now some examples. In your family, if you proclaim the gospel to a child who wants power and influence, they're going to rage against you. There's going to be a measure of suffering that you experience at the hands of your own children. Or if you tell your spouse that you have a control idol and you're trying to, trying to have mastery over whatever it is that they're doing and it's controlling them. 
you could potentially suffer at the hands of your spouse. How about at work? If you're unwilling to gossip with your coworkers about the boss, unwilling to complain about him, and instead, let's take it a step further, you begin to explore with your coworkers what they want right now that they can't have, and that that right there is their God, you might experience some suffering. Or how about at school? If you're at school, college, particularly high school, if you're unwilling to take a stand, I'm sorry, if you are willing to take a stand on a biblical sexual ethic and why it points to the grace of the gospel, you will likely suffer at the hands of those around you. Or how about in the church? If you're willing to lovingly call people to a bigger God than the God they're currently worshiping and to name it as such, you might find yourself suffering. A couple other framing thoughts here before we get in. When we think about suffering, we first have to come to terms, I think, with the idea of suffering. Because here's, here's the reality. We live in a culture where we try to do everything we can to insulate ourselves from suffering. We spend money to avoid suffering. We work hard using our time to avoid suffering. We do things to our children to keep them from suffering. Now, certainly there's a measure of rightness in in some of these things. But if we spend all 18 years of our children's lives while they're at home insulating them from suffering, we will not equip them for a life of godliness in a world full of suffering. But we do everything we can to insulate ourselves from suffering. We run from it. We hide from it. When we suffer because of our own sinfulness, we blame other people for our sinfulness and the resulting suffering. Or, on the flip side of this, if we don't run from suffering and insulate our suffering, we oftentimes run headlong into it, but we do it more with arrogance than with courage. I want to, as we begin talking about this idea of courage, We have to understand that courage does not equal pride and arrogance. In our culture, it does. Like, to be courageous, you're also prideful and arrogant. You don't, when I think of someone who's propped up as courageous in our culture, they are propped, they've got this big head, this ego, and no one can stop them, and no one can speak to them, and they've got it. But that is just simply worldliness cloaked in spirituality. It's worldliness cloaked in godliness. And courage that is more like pride and arrogance will not lead to doing godly things. It will lead to doing worldly things. And this is, listen, this is how someone can be in the midst of a trial and deaf to the truth and blind to reality. Have you ever had someone that you, or maybe it's been yourself, in the midst of trial and suffering, you're, you're like, if they would just grab this, 
If they would just believe this, if they would just realize this is the reality of their situation, this would happen. And yet you, you try to speak to them or someone tries to speak to you and there's just no hearing. They're just blind. The psalmist says that, <clears throat> that these people become like the idols they worship, having ears but cannot hear, having eyes but cannot see, having mouths but cannot speak. Because it's not courage, it's actually arrogance. It's, it's pride that is masking a lack of courage, indeed. So as we think about this idea of courage and how do we live faithfully the gospel, it, on one hand, it's not a, a suppressing of reality, and on the other hand, it's not a, an arrogance that's, a, that's covering up a lack of courage. We want a courage that genuinely understands reality and yet, as Rusty said last week, does what's right. Courage understands reality and still does what's right in the face of it. Listen, I, I was reading in a book uh, called Letting Go, Rugged Love for the Wayward Soul. And in there he, he talks about how Christians should have the greatest understanding of reality. Why? Because they don't have to run from it to deal with it. That they can look at reality and go, you know what? This is how he actually says it in the book. He says, you know what? It's actually probably worse than I can even see right now. But you know what? Everything will be okay. The Lord is still good. I can still have courage to move through this. And so as we think about this idea of courage, I want to frame it this way. We need true biblical courage. Courage to do the right thing even when no one else is doing it. But probably, even more than that, let me say this last thing. We need the courage to do the right thing even when our own idols are crashing upon us, causing great heart and mental suffering. So as we think about courage, I think we learn three things in this passage about courage. And how to have courage. Paul was courageous because. Three things. The first one is this. Paul recognized God's sovereign hand. Paul recognized God's sovereign hand. This is our verse from chapter 23. The following night the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Here's just an explicit thing that's being implied all over the place. And that is God is in control. Everything, listen, everything seems to be going wrong for Paul. Imprisonment, suffering, potential death. Everything seems to be going wrong, but God says, Paul... Yep, you're going to struggle. All these things are going to happen. It's going to be hard. But you will make it to Rome. I'm not changing your circumstances. I'm not changing the trial. But here's what I do know is that you're going to make it to Rome. So a few comments here on God's sovereign hand as we see it worked out here in Paul's life. First one is this. God's hand is always invisible. but always at work, no matter what is happening. Like, you ever think about it? Like, you and I don't actually get to see the hand of God. Like, 
we get to see the effects of the hand of God. We get to see what he's doing. We don't actually get to see his hands. Now Paul faces death four times, four would-be assassinations. But every time, God's hand thwarts the attempts. Every time. I mean, that has to be encouraging to Paul, right? I mean, of course, it's probably like, all right, is he just saving me for another one, right? I mean, that might be a little on the discouraging side. But, but nevertheless, he, he walks through these situations. God just thwarts their attempts. He, God sustains Paul's life. He continues him on and on. It has to be encouraging to Paul. Notice this. You don't see Paul responding like a victim, you see instead, you don't, hear, you don't hear Paul complaining about these people to these people. You don't hear him pouting victimization. What you see him instead is responding more like a victor. You see him saying, all right, God, what's next? What's the plan? Where are we going from here? Show me, God. Should we go this way? Should we go this way? What's, what's next in our proclamation? What city do we go to next to proclaim the good news of Jesus? What disciples are we going to raise up next? Hey, this church needs elders. Let's go take care of that. We, 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 li- we, we live in this victimized culture. Everyone's a victim. Instead, Paul responds like a victor. Do you understand that if we're in Christ, that we and I are victors? That our victory is secured, ultimately. Paul had, the, the only way that Paul is walking like a victor is because he had to have seen that everything around him was happening at the hand of God. That God was moving people, moving conversations. He was orchestrating everything around Paul. Paul understood that God's hand was always invisible, but it was always at work. Another thing about God's hand, as we see in this text, is that His hand always, well, uh, almost always, 99% of the time, involves delays and deferments. God's hand involves delays and deferments. This is particularly important. If you want to understand how God is likely going to work in the midst of your suffering, if you want to understand how do I walk with God's hand and have courage, I have to understand that God habitually works with delays and deferments. I mean, just scan the Scriptures. A couple big examples. Abraham. Had to wait a long time for Isaac. How about a delay there? The Egyptian exile, hundreds of years in slavery. Hundreds of years in slavery. God is working in the delay of delivery, of deliverance for those in exile. It should be no surprise to us then that suffering takes time. Suffering takes time. It doesn't, it it surprises us because we live in a world of instant gratification. What we want, we want it now. 
and I should be able to have it now. I should be able to pay to have it now. And if I can't pay to have it now, I'll get a loan so that I can have it now. We live in a world of instant gratification. So it should, but it should be no surprise to us that suffering takes time. God works in delays and deferments. And the next thing I want you to see is that Paul knew specifically, I want to give you a specific example where Paul understood that Christ reigned over his very specific instance of suffering. Like God doesn't just Okay, like that's suffering, it's a part of my plan, and you know, now you go live faithfully. But instead, God actually is specifically, narrowly even involved, hands-on in the details of Paul's suffering. In Ephesians 3, verse 1, Paul's writing Ephesians in the midst of this imprisonment. He says, for this reason, I... Paul, a what? A prisoner. Of who? Felix? Of the Jews? The Roman Empire? He's a prisoner of Christ Jesus. For what purpose? On behalf of you Gentiles. Paul understands at this moment that he is Christ's prisoner. I don't think this is just Paul saying, I, I think it's in part this, but I don't think Paul's just saying, you know what, I am a slave to Jesus. I am his prisoner. No, I think Paul is in chains. He's in jail. And he, what he's saying is that my imprisonment right now, the, the chains, the walls surrounding me, the doors of which I cannot walk through freely, this imprisonment right now, I am not in this midst of this suffering because Felix is ultimately in control, because Satan is getting his way. I'm here because I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Someone said this, Paul viewed Christ as the one who, in his ever gracious providence, had brought about his imprisonment. Did you hear that? Do you see Christ as the one who stands sovereignly over the imprisonment of your very suffering? Every aspect of it. He's the one that stands, listen, I know this is hard, but he's the one that stands there with the keys. Paul understood this. Paul had experienced this, right? The, the jails break open, and what's Paul do? I could walk out, but I'm supposed to stay here. What happens? People get saved. Paul understood at any moment, these jail cells could just break open. And God could do that if that's what he wanted. He understood that Jesus stood there with the keys. And listen, I don't think Paul was saying this in Ephesians 3 with, with sadness. Just a few words later in Ephesians 3.1, he says, Don't lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, you Gentiles. And then later he says, According to the riches of his glory. I mean, Paul, if you read Ephesians, 
I mean, Paul may not be thrilled that he's in a jail cell, but he is certainly joyful in the Lord in the midst of his suffering. So here's the question for us. How do you interact with the sovereign hand of God in the midst of suffering? Like, how do you specifically interact with it? Does God show up and tell you what the next plan is? Hey, I know it's hard right now, but you're going to make it to Rome, okay? I'll sustain you because there's something for you to do next. You say, well, God doesn't do that with me. How do I, how do I walk with this? A couple things. Something real quick about emotions. Understand that the emotions you're having are real. In the midst of suffering, the emotions you're having are real. Our culture tells us that emotions are something to be suppressed. Like the hardship of suffering, that emotions are something to be suppressed. They're not something to be suppressed. There's something to pay attention to. There's something to pay attention to. Now, you understand that, this is a side note, emotions come from someplace in our hearts, right? They're an overflow of our hearts. They're telling us, they're, uh, as one author said, I think it was at least Fitzpatrick, I think is who said it, that they're warning lights. They're warning lights, telling us something about ourselves. Part of the reason that we struggle with what's going on in the midst of suffering is because we can't see the hand of God. We want to see the hand of God. We were made to want to see the hand of God, but we can't see the hand of God. 2 Corinthians 4.18 says this, though, As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Listen, I, I think largely our emotions are likely telling us that we're trusting in things that we hope to see, rather than in what is unseen. Paul is walking in the midst of suffering. I mean, at any moment he could take his life. And and yet he's hoping, he tells us in 2 Corinthians, that he's hoping in the things that are not seen, because they are eternal. So just... Briefly here, as you interact with the sovereign hand of God, are you looking for the things that are seen or are you looking and clinging to the things that are unseen? Paul was looking to the unseen hand of God. That, at least in part, gave him the courage to remain faithful. The second thing that Paul did, Paul interpreted life through the lens of the gospel. Paul interpreted life through the lens of the gospel. Listen, this is one of the five trials that Paul will face. And this one's before Felix. The religious leaders bring, you're like, well, who's Tertullus? Who's this guy? He was an attorney. He was a lawyer. And the Jewish leaders bring a lawyer. They bring someone who knows how to speak well to Felix on their behalf. And here are their charges. They say that Paul is a pest. He's a public nuisance. He's a plague. He's infecting people. Second charge, they say Paul is a political agitator. That he stirs up riots. Now there is a grain of truth in that statement. 
He was found in riots very often, but he didn't cause them. These riots ensued because Paul spoke the truth and the people raged against the truth. Now, that doesn't mean that all riots are because of truth being spoken. They can also be caused because falsehoods are being spoken. But nevertheless, Paul is found in riots often because the truth is being raged against. The third thing that Paul's accused of is he's a leader of a sectarian movement. When Tertullus calls him the, uh, like a leader or part of the sect of the Nazarenes, he's not, it's not a good thing. He's not saying, oh, you know, them good Nazarenes over there and Paul's a leader of a group from that. No, this is a, der- a, a, a derogatory statement. He was being derisive when he says a Nazarene. He was and then he says, as a part of this movement, he's disrupting the temple. He's causing disruptions in, in the temple. I want you to notice, as the religious leaders are coming against Paul, because if you, we're not going to look at these, these things in detail. Like, for example, they, they didn't just come and get him out of there. That was, he's lying. Tertullus is lying in part of this. And, but what I want you to see is that those who oppose Christ will go to great lengths to oppose the kingdom. They will use skill, political maneuvering, lies. So part of that is for us as we think about living courageously for the gospel in our increasingly hostile culture. I hope you understand that, that our culture is not going to get any easier to live as Christians in. It's getting harder by the day, by the minute. We should not be surprised when this happens. So here's the question. How did Paul respond? How did Paul respond in the midst of this trial? <coughs> he responded with the gospel. You say, well, how did he respond with the gospel? Right, the gospel is this, just in general, the gospel is this. Our great God in mercy sends his son Jesus to live the righteous life that we could not live and to die the death for our unrighteousness so that by faith in his works we might be saved. Let me repeat that again. The gospel is this. Our great God in mercy sends his son Jesus to live the righteous life that we could not live and die the death that our unrighteous for our unrighteousness so that by faith in his work we might be saved. And it's through that lens, okay? It's through that lens that Paul's going to view his suffering, view his trial, even interpret the accusations. It's through that lens by which Paul gives his defense. Very briefly here. They accuse him of being a part of some sect, right? Some sect of the Nazarenes. Uh, some sect that they call the way. And what does Paul say? He goes, actually, I'm following the scriptures, and the scriptures say that Jesus is the way. Go back and read Paul's thing. If you actually, he's saying to them, if you actually understood the scriptures, he implies you would believe the same thing. 
So this idea of the gospel, he, he uses the gospel to give his defense for what he's actually doing. He doesn't say, you know what, uh, you know, uh, listen, the gospel is why I was here. And if you understood the scriptures, you would be doing the same thing. He says, I'm not stirring up riots. He goes, I actually came here to worship. Right? He says he came to give an offering. He came to take care of the poor. Now sure, the gospel is provocative. But if you and the rest understood the scriptures, you would come to worship as I have these days. You see what Paul is doing? Go, go watch how Paul is masterfully giving this defense from the good news of the gospel. Listen, here's what Paul's doing. Because he is living faithfully, and here's the key, at least in part, for us today. Because Paul is living faithfully, he's able to say this. The gospel is my defense. What I am doing is because of the gospel. But here's the problem for us. So often we do things that bring about strife because of our sinfulness. That bring about suffering because of our sinfulness. But Paul's suffering here is because of their sinfulness and because of his faithfulness to the gospel. And so in the midst of that, he gets to proclaim, he gets to share, and he gets to use the gospel as a defense for what he's doing. But when we so often experience suffering because of our sinfulness or our lack of faithfulness, we don't get to justify that with the gospel. Oh, we get to cling to the gospel in repentance. That's another part of the conversation. But, but we don't get to justify what we're doing with the gospel. We have no justification for what we're doing. We just get left standing there holding the bag. But if we're living faithfully and strife comes, do you understand how precious it is to get to say, the gospel is my defense? The good news of Jesus is my defense for what just happened, for what I just said, for what I didn't say, for the actions that I just took. And you know how beautiful it is in parenting to get to say to your child, you know, child, I have given you this discipline because the gospel is my defense. Because in love, Jesus took the punishment so that I could have the loving discipline of a father. That is why I, in love for you, am disciplining you, my child. Or at your workplace, <clears throat> and you're unwilling to do the unethical thing that your coworkers are doing or such, and knowing that you're going to face suffering because of it, how precious it is in that moment to get to say, the gospel is my defense. My faithfulness here is because I have been bought by the blood of Jesus. And you know, if they understood the blood of Jesus, they would not be doing this either. See what Paul is doing? He is interpreting his trials through the lens of the gospel. Let's go back to that 2 Corinthians passage. 7 through 10. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. 
says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. See, we are weak. But because of the gospel, God's surpassing power is at work in us. See, that's why this, this idea of courage born out of pride and arrogance, courage born out of a suppressing of reality, just doesn't get it. That doesn't affirm the gospel. That doesn't grab a hold. That doesn't live according to the gospel. What we understand here is that we're weak. It's actually out of humility that we actually grab a hold of the power of the gospel. So here's the question. How do we deal with trials? Thinking two categories here. First of all, broadly speaking, we can be humble towards hostility as we live faithfully because Jesus was humble. Like we can live humbly and compassionately towards those who are hostile because Jesus was humble in doing so. Jesus took on flesh and entered into a world that he knew would ultimately kill him. He approached hostility, though, with love. And listen, very briefly here, we can approach the hostility around us with love, not because Jesus was simply our model and we should go do, do likewise, but we can approach hostility with love because Jesus took God's hostility due to us because of our sin as He absorbed it on the cross. So, what is this hostility over here from these people compared to the hostility that I was due from God for my sinfulness? That Jesus took every ounce of it away. Every ounce of it away. So we can be humble as we approach hostility for faithful living, but personally... Listen, our world does not help us to be realistic about suffering. Again, we try to suppress it, try to hide it. The world says, oh, it'll all be okay. Just, just keep on going. It'll be fine. Just Someone said this, the gospel tells us that this life is not about finding comfort at every turn. Instead, it's about enduring trials and sufferings because we know that our Savior, our King, voluntarily endured trials for us as our substitute. Listen, if you, and last thought here, if you think of the gospel as a lens, it will help us avoid two extremes. The first extreme is this. It'll help you avoid fatalism. So what's fatalism? It'll help you avoid the idea of saying, you know, it's meaningless. This suffering's meaningless. Or, you know, it's, it's just a mess and it's just something for me. I just got to get through it. Fatalism. But also, the gospel helps you avoid the other extreme, and that is sentimental platitudes. Life is full of suffering, but essentially it's an illusion. Just press forward. It'll be okay. Sentimental platitudes. The gospel says... That not only it's not meaningless, it's actually 
meaningful. And it's not an illusion. It's the essence of life. So let me ask you this question. In the midst of past suffering, in the midst of suffering now, what is helping you? What is helping you be courageous through suffering? What has helped you be courageous through suffering? The last thing we see in Paul's courage is that he believed in the resurrection. He believed in the resurrection. Acts 24, 21, let's reread this. He goes, other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. You can't hardly hear Paul speak in the book of Acts without reference to the resurrection. He keeps going back to the resurrection. He keeps going back to the resurrection. Listen, Jesus doesn't hold the key to our resurrection if he doesn't also hold the keys to our suffering. He holds the keys to both. Listen, he bought the keys to both when he suffered our ultimate suffering on the cross. He bought the keys to resurrection. He bought the keys to our suffering. He bought the suffering. Listen to me here. He bought the suffering that would be used for our good instead of our condemnation. Do you understand the difference? Do you understand the difference? That there was suffering for each one of us to be had, to, to, to experience, because of our sinfulness, as a part of our condemnation. But Jesus, for His bride, bought the suffering that would be used for their good, for their sanctification. Samuel Rutherford in 1637 said this, How sad a prisoner should I be if I knew not that my Lord Jesus had the keys of the prison himself. The resurrection says that Jesus holds the keys to our suffering. And we all have a gospel though. Here's the issue. When I ask the question, how, what's helping you through suffering? Here's the reality. We all have a gospel that we believe will rescue us in order to get our way through suffering. For some, it's technology. I'm just going to drown myself in my phone. That will get me through the suffering I'm experiencing right now. TV. Medicine. We use lots of things to self-medicate, from chocolate to drugs. What do we use to get through suffering? If you watch, most of those options are exercises in suppressing reality. It's, it's, option, it's options to suppress what I'm feeling, what's going on, so that I can just pretend like it's not there and move on. Remember, Christians, we can face reality as it is. I'm not saying there's never a time for medication. Okay, so don't, don't take what I'm saying to the extreme. 
But much of our walking is us trying to, on our own, deal with suffering instead of facing reality and walking with the Lord. Someone said this, frustrations of this nature throw us back to the Lord Himself and perhaps to a needed recovery of the recognition that what ultimately matters in our lives is our knowing God. 2 Corinthians 4, 16-18 says this, So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Very quickly here, he says we do not lose heart. Why? What do we do? We stay joyful. We stay hopeful. We stay looking ahead, facing reality. He says this, our outer self is wasting away. He doesn't downplay and say, you know what? It's not that bad. No, it's actually wasting away. It's falling apart. These afflictions have come upon us. It's broken. It's suffering. It's passing away. It's subject to futility. He says this, but the other part of this reality, here's the suffering, and this is really real. We don't have to ignore it. We don't have to suppress it. We don't have to push it away. But then on this side he says, but the other part of reality is this, is that the inner self is being renewed. It's untouchable. Why? Because it's God's. It's in His hands. Heard someone say recently, he wanted to know where to fight suffering. Where to fight pain inflicted upon you from others, from the sin of this world, or where to fight the pain of suffering simply from a, a broken world that surrounds us. You fight the battle first on the inside. Because why? Because the inner man is being renewed day by day. This affliction, he says, is light and momentary. Is he downplaying the reality of pain and suffering? No, Paul's not saying, hey, you know, it's not that bad. What he's telling you is the reality is that it's just momentary. It's not light because it's easy. It's light because of what it's being compared to. Right? Do you understand that? He's not saying, hey, it's not really that bad. It's actually just pretty easy. No, he's saying when you compare it to the glory to be but hell, it's light. It's easy compared to this. He says that it serves a purpose. It serves to take our eyes off ourselves. You ever, you ever thought about just the practicality of this? That it's really hard to know if your eyes are off of yourself in the midst of things going well. Like, it's just really practically hard. How do you know if your eyes are being thankful for your mighty hand in the midst of things going well or thankful for God's mighty hand in the things going well? But it's practically much easier to know whose eyes your gaze is upon in the midst of suffering. 
See, when things are going well, it's really easy to behold our own glory. But when things are not going well, it's when you and I realize we've come, hopefully, to the end of ourselves. I'm not glorious enough to take care of this. Listen, when suffering is present, you can know very easily on whose glory you are gazing. And when we take our gaze off ourselves and behold His glory, it's there, only there, and it's then, only then, that we are truly made whole, made complete, and rescued. It's with humble eyes fixed on God's glory in the face of Jesus that we find courage to be faithful to the end. That's Paul's point here. God is glorified when His creation says, the only glory good enough for me is the glory of my God. And suffering helps us focus on the right glory. That's what he says, it's preparing us. He says, for this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Do you understand the, the practical benefit and blessing of suffering? It is actually moving us away from beholding other glories that fail in comparison to the glory of God. It slowly, one step at a time, is ripping those things from our hands, from the gaze of our eyes and preparing us. Like, Do you understand the weightiness of the glory of which you and I will behold? And God in His kindness is preparing us for that someday. Listen, the frustrations of our days, the momentary sufferings, the mundane moments of things we don't want to do, the extended trials of pain and heartache all serve one great purpose. To tell us that what is most basic to our joy, what is most basic to our livelihood, what is most needed for us to thrive, what is most needed for us to even simply live, is to know God. But not just to know Him as Satan knows Him, but to actually behold His glory and bow before Him. We do this by faith, realizing that we cannot see His sovereign hand in our lives, but we can see the effects of His sovereign hand. We can trust in what is unseen, what is not heard. This is how we remain courageously faithful to the Lord through suffering. We look to the things unseen. We behold His glory. We understand in the midst of suffering that it's preparing us to do that. Suffering strips away our innate and continual obsessiveness with beholding our glory and control, power, etc. And it continually, by God's grace and the work of the Spirit, points our eyes upward to behold His glory, preparing us to behold His glory in all its splendor one day. Some of you know who the missionary Amy Carmichael. She was an Irish-born Presbyterian who suffered greatly from a nerve disease that made her whole body weak and achy, often putting her in a bed for weeks on end. Having heard Hudson Taylor, the founder of the China Inland Mission, speak about missionary life, she became convinced of her calling to missionary work. Later, she would travel to India where she served faithfully, sharing the gospel even in the midst of her suffering. We're told she served for 55 years without any furlough. 
without a break, even through her physical suffering. She knew something of the reality that what ultimately matters in our lives is knowing God. She wrote this. Long is the way and very steep the slope. Strengthen me once again, O God of hope. Far, very far, the summit doth appear. But thou art near, my God, but thou art near. And thou wilt give me my daily good, power of endurance, courage, fortitude. Thy way is perfect. Only let that way be clear before my feet from day to day. Thou art my portion, saith my soul to thee. Oh, what a portion is my God to me. Let's pray. Father, may you, in your kindness, in your great sovereignty, Father, in your great mercy, Father, may you help us see through our suffering, that the only portion we need is you. Whatever the, the suffering is, may, whether it's because of broken bodies, it's because of depression, it's because of idolatry, because of the sin of someone else, Whatever it is. But may we see, as, as Paul saw, that, that the resurrection matters. That one day, we will be resurrected to behold your glory in all of its brilliance, Father, for all of eternity. This incredible weight of your existence. And Father, that each one of our daily moments, every moment spent in suffering is preparing us to behold this glory. Father, as you slowly and meticulously and sovereignly and providentially move our eyes from these lesser glories, so that we might behold this greater glory. I pray that you'd give us courage to the end, but not courage of hiding the truth, not courage of arrogance, but humble courage. Humble courage, knowing that Jesus walked this path before us. And Paul is modeling this for us as well. Father, help us to see your sovereign hand. Father, help us to view life through the lens of the gospel. And Father, please help us to see the resurrection as a reality for those who are covered in the blood of your son, Jesus. Father, for it's your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen.